0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Eric Wright, the host of the Disco Posse podcast. This is a really, really fun and informative show with Slater Viktorov. And we're going to dive into machine learning. We're going to talk about artificial general intelligence. We're going to talk about some really, really cool, deep stuff. But it's at such an incredible level that it's it's very consumable. Uh, and we really cover a lot of ground with this one. Before we jump in. I want to make sure that I give the ultimate shout out to all of our friends that make this podcast happen, which is, first of all, our fine friends over at Veeam Software. Now, Veeam is such an incredible partner, and they're also an incredible team and platform. So if you have anything out there that's in IT, and I know you got it, don't lie to yourself. Uh, they've got you covered for everything you need for your data protection needs. Whether it's going to be on-premises, whether it's virtualization, bare metal, you name even physical endpoints, we've got all sorts of crazy stuff. Then up in the cloud. Oh, that's right. It's not protected just because it's in the cloud. In fact, it's the most volatile and dangerous because it's in the cloud. Uh, that doesn't come ransomware. So many cases where you definitely need to protect those assets. So cover your assets, and that's the way to do it by getting Veeam. So go to Vee.am forward slash Disco Posse. It is literally that easy to, to jump on in. All right. Now, the next one, of course, is sponsored by yours truly, because I've got two angles that I want to get you covered by. Number one, you need a tasty brew to start your day off with, and that's where you can start out with the amazing and tasty, devilishly good, diabolical coffee. Diabolical Coffee is available from DiabolicalCoffee.com, and also, not only is it really cool merchandise, it's amazing coffee, and on top of that, proceeds from the profits go to contribute back to the technology community, to open doors for people to be able to get access to education, so we're giving lots of paid sponsorships into educational platforms, and eventually, when we can all get together in person, we're going to do trip sponsorship as well to get people to events. And also, one more thing, I want you to head on over to VelocityClosing.com if you want to be able to connect better with people, do better things around delivering demos to show your products, technologies, and and platforms and services, this is the place to go. But let's jump right to the good stuff. We're going to talk with Slater Viktorov. He's the CTO and co-founder of Indico Data. So check it out. He's doing amazing stuff with his team, and this is an absolute must listen. With that, let's get started.
1: My name is Slater Victoroff. I'm the CTO and co founder of Indico Data Solutions. And you're listening to the Disco Posse Podcast. You're listening
0: to the Disco Posse Podcast. Slater, thank you very much for joining. I've. I've always liked when you get to see your guest lists and you think to myself, there are about 87 things that I want to talk to this person about. And you're, you are one of those people. uh, I've seen you've described as poet, uh, MMA fighter, founder, many things.
1: Uh (laughs) Yeah. Among, among a handful of others, but you know, yeah, that is right.
0: (laughs) Uh, So let's start with what you're doing right now. Uh, you are CTO and co-founder of Indico Data Solutions. So if you wanna give a quick brief bio on yourself and we'll talk about what Indico's doing, cause this is actually really, you got some really great stuff that's going on in the company uh, and we'll, we'll start there and we'll kind of branch backwards to the, the other parts of the story that brought you here.
1: Absolutely. So what I like to say is that Indico is an intelligent process automation company. Uh, some people might be familiar with that space, but for the folks that aren't, uh, everyone defines it a little bit differently. What's important to us is at the end of the day, our responsibility is to take some of the most complex ML on the planet, as I mentioned, and make it accessible to non-technical users. Uh, so when you hear about these you know, advances coming out of Google and Facebook and OpenAI, uh, those are you know, very, very literally the technologies that we're using, that we're helping to develop, though our focus is a bit different than, uh, than theirs. Uh, As opposed to seeking kind of incremental improvements in architectures, our goal much more is to seek incremental improvements in usability and accessibility. So, the question that we ask is how can we allow non technical users to use this technology in a productive and effective way? You know, the target that we've chosen for that is primarily document processing. So you think text data, you think image data. Uh, and it's a platform that, that, you know, really puts the power of these, you know, very large language computer vision models, uh, again, in the hands of a non-technical user. It allows them to uh, automate their own day-to-day processes, a uh, process that we call stakeholder-driven automation, because the people that are doing it today actually get to decide how this thing is going to be implemented and how it's going to work in production.
0: Now the neat thing beyond what you do which is really slick and technically complex and so you've really helped people to kind of make that jump into the adopting these technologies but the the idea of doing it with less data and that jumped out when Absolutely. we when I looked across the materials and because I think this is one of the biggest problems that people get hung up on. Like, I want to adopt some machine learning. And all you see is it's only as good if you've got these monstrous model data to feed into the model and train it. And, 100%. And also you talk about unstructured processes as well, which is, a part, I'm, I'm Canadian, so you hear I say process and project. <laughs> Pardon my strange accent. But so let's talk about you don't need that much data. What's the, what's the reality behind that?
1: So uh, let me maybe uh, wind back in time a couple of years ago and and tell you exactly how we we kind of ended up here uh, and maybe draw some links to some uh, popular advances that people may have heard of. Uh, so I'll ask you, Eric. Have you ever heard of the paper uh, GPT three or the GPT series of papers?
0: Boy, oh boy, have I! In fact, I've yeah. tested the test of the uh, test of the heck out of GPT two and GPT three as far as like natural language processing. So I, I'm pretty pretty well versed in that one, luckily.
1: So, uh, so you know, Alec Radford, uh, then,
0: the... yeah. Great. Uh, We've we've actually had uh, I I'm I'm hoping one day I'd love to have him on the podcast lots of great oh, yeah. folks that are in, that are in the in the space and uh, yeah Alec jumps out definitely as a name that uh, people should know if they're looking in, in the GBD space for sure.
1: Great, so you know uh, Alec is you know he's a really close personal friend of mine and, and most relevant you know he he was actually nice. uh, the original co-founder of Indico uh, along with me and oh, so wow. okay yeah so so to maybe kind of draw you back you know in time. Uh, It's me and Alec, right, in a dorm room, the Olin College of Engineering. Uh, What I always like to say is that uh, Indico was founded between the hours of 5 p.m. and 5 a.m. on Sunday evenings. Uh, And, and, you know, it's very, very much the case, right? I mean, it was us doing Kaggle competitions, right? You know, we were there uh, kind of 2012, 2013, very much watching this deep learning revolution kind of happen in front of our eyes. Uh, I, I being, you know, very, very much a skeptic. Right. In 2012, I actually said to one of my professors, uh, the war is over. Deep learning lost. Uh, Now, I'm eating crow in a very serious way now, uh, but I don't think it was a particularly strange thing to believe at the time. Right. Kind of a middle of 2012. So, you know, really roughly, you know, I fell in love with the technology, right? I think Alec, Alec, he was uh, he was there faster than I was. I will definitely say, but you know, after a while, and I, when I really started to see a couple of these applications come to life, uh, you know, specifically in the computer vision domain, and, and you know, I started to see uh, some early kind of successes in the NLP space as well. Um, uh, you know, we started to get really excited about the possibilities, and we were doing very well on the Kaggle competitions. Uh, We were still in school. You know, you'll still see our name on some of the early Kaggle leaderboards, sophomore Olin hackers. And then we advanced to junior Olin hackers at some point. Um, And at some point, we actually made a bet with each other. And we said, "Okay, uh, you know, people were asking us, you know, hey, you know, would love to collaborate on projects. And we said, if we manage to make $1,000 in consulting in the next two weeks, uh, then we have to make a company. And and that is actually, in in so many ways, sort of the the genesis of Indico, right, was this idea that, you know, we're sold on the technology, we think it's really got potential, we're just going to try to bring it out, put it in people's hands, see what happens. Uh, You know, and we we did succeed in that first goal, but the thing that we also learned immediately thereafter was that as well as deep learning worked in these really well-constructed academic, uh, you know, environments, they did not work the enterprise at all right? Uh, our, our CEO, Tom Wild likes to sum it up really succinctly. Uh, deep learning is a very, very smart learner, but it's a very, very slow learner. And, you know, this brought us to kind of, you know, 2013. And this, in so many ways, was actually the problem that Indico was created to solve, right? This idea that we want to make this technology accessible. We want to figure out how we actually cross the, you know, the the chasm in so many ways, right? That was obvious even then, right? Is how do we get this in the hands of people? How do we really take this to the next level? And there were a couple of papers that just absolutely inspired us. So it was the early Word2Vec paper, right? It was the Doc2Vec paper after that, and a uh, and Fergus paper, you know, visualizing, understanding convolutional neural networks. And I'll actually say, you know, huge, huge props to, to Zeiler and Fergus and, and the Clarify team, because that paper, um, it's probably been one of the most impactful papers for me in, in my entire career uh, because of just how thoroughly they dispel this notion of, uh, you know, modern network models as black boxes, right? Yeah. Sort of like you want to see how transparent this is. You know, we're going to break this open. We're going to show it to you in every, every possible conceivable way. And it kind of hinted at this idea that, you know, these insights were not just useful or, and meaningful, but they were actually generically useful and meaningful. And that was, again, a really, really powerful concept. And and Indico in many ways was kind of formed around this genesis of the idea that maybe this wasn't just true of images. Right? You know, maybe this actually was all a all kind of a, a part of the same undercurrent. And you know, you can see on the Indico side, obviously we've charged forward very much on fusing text and image information. See Alec is very much continued on that track, also on the GPT side. Uh, it's funny in a lot of ways how closely our work has stayed tied together uh, over the years.
0: Yeah, and, I, and I've, I now I feel like a terrible human because I totally did not connect that he had been a co-founder at Indico. It was funny. I knew I know the name via the OpenAI and some of the paper stuff. So definitely, that, yep, that is wild.
1: <laughs> it's a small
0: world. Uh, that it is, That is it is. Interesting, we actually, one of my uh, recent shows, we had, we had Peter Voss, who's from Igo, and, and he's often talked about as the originator of the actual phrase, uh, artificial general intelligence, where AGI is separated from AI. Now, yeah. there's a lot of people that would probably lay claim to that as well as who came up with the pets versus cattle, alg- you know, analogy. Oh, uh,
1: sure, I mean, what? you know, I'm not gonna fight for credit on that
0: <laughs> <laughs> But, But the, it is interesting, like you said, if we look of, you know, where these papers had come out and they often they feel really onerous for people to even get through because they don't understand. They don't have the math backgrounds there. So there's a very unfortunate sense that if I don't understand how it's being written, how could I possibly use the technology that it's based on?
1: Really fair. You know, it, it's a great point And it's something that I think is really interesting because, you know, One thing that, again, I just have to give incredible credit to the entire machine learning academic community for is that, you know, the ML space has absolutely been a trailblazer in terms of open research, in terms of really leading the charge on reproducibility. And uh, that's not to say that there's not more work to be done, Um, but... Uh, they've gone so 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 far beyond what is considered typical in in other uh, areas, right? Even just looking at the percent of all you know impactful papers that are done in open review, you know, I, I don't I don't know that Elsevier makes a cent from the AI space, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm very happy to say that. Um, so so that's that's kind of the one piece. But you know, the flip side is that it is it is legitimately it is a very difficult technical domain, right? And I think it's one that is. Not that this is particularly unique to, you know, AI and ML, right? But because it is a new space, there's quite a lot of research surface area, right? That means that, uh, you know, the right analogies for talking about it, they're not very clear. You know, it's very, very noisy. And the question of, you know, where is interesting stuff happening? You know, like what's happening over here? What's new? What's old? It's very hard to figure out, right? And, you know, unfortunately... The only way that you can really cut through it is by, you know, coming up the curve on the math, right? It is re-implementing these papers, it is benchmarking the heck out of them. Because honestly, even, even as far as the ML space has gone in terms of reproducibility, we still find that the, you know, the percent of all papers that you see, even at a, a top level conference that are actually generically useful, you know, it's it's five to ten percent of them, right? It's actually still quite a low hit rate. Um, that's not to say that, you know, if they're not generally useful, they're not important papers, right? Often yeah. they can still have, uh, uh, you know, philosophical benefits, right, and, and things along those lines. But, but even still, I think that it points to um, a little bit of a paradox in the ML space right now, where uh, I think the problems of yesteryear, like ImageNet and, you know, sentiment analysis, they've been solved and found wanting, I would say, right? Yeah. Kind of like check them off and be like, wow. I cannot believe we thought that would get us to, you know, this, this golden land. And, and, you know, I, I don't think that we've come out on the other side of that. We, we haven't yet found the right way to, to really test the, the next generation of AI.
0: Yeah. And I think part of it is the, we got caught right in the middle of number one, you know, the academic edge of it, right? Like, can we do this? So there's the, can we, Okay, we did. Now, what do we do with, which is now where we best leverage these things. And then immediately what became a real, uh, a real pivot for most people, especially that weren't aware of what actually makes these technologies and these, these things work, is the ethics of the behaviors with which we adopt technology that can do these things. And we made a real fast jump societally on questioning the ethics. We'd never question the ethics of, you know, using uh, objective C as a programming language. We never mm-hmm. tested the objectives of Rust versus Golang. Like we don't, but when it comes to the transparency and reproducibility problem, this really, really opened up enough questions that it's like anything where you say, if I can't have it all, I want none of it. And it, there's a real unfortunate sense that because enough of it wasn't reproducible, or it was very black box, there's a real, there's a natural automatic distrust. And anyways, you you yeah. you you talked about transparency, and I know you're you're very strong in this and understanding like the idea of the transparency, the way the models behave. 100%. Is super important. So you know. Anyways, so that's I, enough of me. You, you you. No no. Does that, that make sense in how I described it?
1: hundred percent. And actually, I think that the criticism of the space is is fair, and I think it is it is constructive. Maybe with a small asterisk that while I think that the dialogue is extremely constructive, there are definitely opportunists that have kind of twisted it to their own means. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, let me let me maybe sum up my my view and. Like maybe another nice uh, historic anecdote uh, anecdote for folks. Uh, do you know where the term "black box" originally came from?
0: I I, I actually don't. This is I, now I, I love Most this. It's one don't. of those things, that- <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: right? So so the original black boxes, right? You know, if you've ever opened up a computer or looked at a circuit, they are integrated circuits. Uh, very literal, like a physical black plastic epoxy box. Um, And what people also don't realize is that the term black box is used very, very differently in the uh, computational architecture space, right, in the very large circuit science space than it is in the AI space, right? Because the notion that I think we have adopted is that black boxing, um, you know, that the black box is opaque, right, that we cannot introspect it, right, that it is, uh, you know, inscrutable. And actually, that's very, very different than how the term originally evolved. Uh, it was much more, you know, it was very closely tied to the evolution of a data sheet. The idea that, you know, when we were building increasingly complex circuits, um, there was no point at which it became impossible to publish a f- full circuit diagram, right? I mean, certainly we could still do that today, the same way that we could take a modern network model and we could tell you exactly what the weight of every single node is. Right. But that ceased to become useful right and it's very very interesting i think when people point at sort of linear regression and say this is an explainable model when point to the parameters and i say we can do exactly the same thing but we recognize that in the deep learning space this does not constitute an explanation Uh, and i very much agree with that assertion but i think that people have to recognize that it also means that just because you can point out the parameters in your ols model right that actually still does not constitute explainability right you might be explaining physically what the model is doing, but that is, uh, you know, what I would characterize that, that is formal explainability, explainability, right? Very useful for researchers, not what people mean generally when they say explainability. Um, And I differentiate it from this notion of functional explainability, which is much more that notion of the data sheet, the idea that we have a black box actually as an empowering method of explainability, that we have defined inputs, defined outputs, we have found a way to characterize the system in a way that you can use it as a building block, right? Without, uh, without losing important detail, you know? And so I think that the perfect data sheet, while a lot of people are taking cracks at that, uh, it doesn't exist today in the ML space, but I think that that is really what uh, at least the most important part of explainability looks like to me, as opposed to arguing about which model architectures are explainable and not. Uh, I, I think that, It's purely
0: not an architectural question in my book. Yeah. And I I always tell people that like describe the explainability of machine learning. I'm like, just watch the scene in Jurassic Park where he's sitting in there and he grabs her hand and he drops a drop of water and he tries to explain chaos theory as he says, like, watch the water goes on one side. Oh, oh, you know, in a way, only Jeff Goldblum. I think the best thing we could do to. To open up the world to the ethics, the understanding, the belief in the ethics of machine learning is to have Jeff Goldblum do it. Oh, so what you said? Oh, come yeah, see, you just Netflix. cracked it open, Ooh. I think. <laughs> <laughs> and there's the because the the human explainability and under and trust and and understanding that is a is a real big push towards how things move from like the academic model. The funny thing is like we've, every technology has gone through this. And in fact, yeah. we, we, we it far before we trust it. And <laughs> by the time we question the trust of it, it's way too ingrained in in behavior. And, and that's, this is the truth, machine learning, you mm-hmm. know, like mm-hmm. we can go back to, you know, look, I mean, early days, at least in the, the first sort of, I'll say writer, not writers in like the commercial writing, like Ray Kurzweil talks about like how to create a mind and talking mm-hmm. to the idea of like convolutional neural networks and and trying to relate it to the 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 newer reader to this who wasn't in the academic space. And, and it was neat, yep. Yep. and it was somewhere between really cool science and possibly the use of, tra- you know, of mushrooms. So I mean, we, we don't like, he, he explains <laughs> yeah. it in a way that you're fairly sure this gentleman enjoyed the sixties. <laughs> yeah. It's just like Penrose, really right? right. Yeah. Well, yeah. that's, that is hilarious. He look like people describe the Penrose stairs and have like, you, know, you do the illustrations of it and you're like, yeah. you know, what's amazing about this? Not just the fact that it's an incredibly challenging intellectual, like this is a thing that the world is hung on, right? Science yeah. is built on this. This man does a lot of drugs. He's really definitely. Cool. <laughs> I, mean, yeah, I mean, he's maybe
1: not quite as open to, uh, about it as, you know, like Huxley or someone, but, yeah. you know, all, all, all contemporaries, right? And I mean, I mean, certainly I could never come up with the idea of Penrose Highlings, right? That's, you know, far beyond my conception. So, you know, I guess it worked for him.
0: Now the uh, fun part. I'm gonna, I should make you unpack Eric Weinstein's, you know, new models and and sort of. Th- there's there's a lot of interesting things in that. Mm-hmm. What I love about the way that we do this, like we bring a paper to you know, through research, gets peer review. Uh, you know, then from there it goes out to the world and it gets cited in other and and it's an mm-hmm. amazing process that is because machine learning is so wrapped in the intellectual core of it. It needs this far more than many other technologies.
1: Yeah, and it's actually, it's also very interesting to see where ML has kind of bristled at the traditional process. And this was kind of a, actually, I sent a tweet out about this. This was almost my Santa Claus moment as an adult, was realizing <laughs> that when you look at science and nature, right, I mean, science and nature, they are the journals for, for science, right? I mean, like, I, I grew up on that stuff. Yeah. Um, They're ML content. It's bad. Like, their their, their (laughs) peer review network for machine learning papers, it it is just, it is legitimately, it is not good. The quality is low. The retraction rate is high, right? Um, And it is not even that they publish these papers very, very commonly, but it was very, very surprising to see, for me to see, you know, the first ML paper I ever saw on Nature you know there was a graph in it where i very clearly saw like they are comparing apples and oranges here right like this would not pass muster at a big conference Right. Um, and again, I think it's interesting in that they have really eschewed the traditional publishing model and they have replaced it instead with, I think, a really potent couple of experimental open review models that they do for all the conferences. And I think so much of it was necessitated by the rapid pace of movement in the ML space, right, is we couldn't deal anymore with the massive lags in between, you know, for, for publishing, right, because all of these Elsevier publishers, you know, they're on such slow schedules, so, you know, we moved everything to these these thrice you know annual conferences, but it means that there's been this this massive move towards things like blind review, right? That I think have been tremendously helpful for the ML space. And again, I just think that I think that it has also empowered other spaces to follow our lead. And you know, I, I think that it has really significantly kind of lessened the hold of Elsevier on the uh, on the academic market. And you know, I, I'm all for that. You know, I think that they're just a uh, awful i just think they're awful it,
0: the the whole process of it is is amazing to me in that what you have to go through to really bring this stuff to to the world and mm-hmm. you know you're you're laying bare a lot of your time and it's an incredible amount and when we saw the you know, then this interesting mix of where there's commercialization of technologies that are based on these things. And then we Mm -hmm. see the introduction, obviously, of of where we we can patent methods and and do certain things. Open AI, of course, you know, opened a lot of eyes to where this would hit, uh, you know, a commercialization space at scale. And, Mm -hmm. you know, and I Look, I don't mean to talk about open AI when I should no. be talking about Indigo. <laughs> but- I mean,
1: open AI is, uh, you know, I mean, I think they're, they're a great point. And it's, it's very relevant because I think, you know, you have seen this blending of industry and academia. Right. And, and, you know, that is another one of the things that ML has certainly kind of pushed forward a lot is that I don't think there is I, I don't think there's another space on the planet where the proportion of cutting edge research that is coming out of industry labs as opposed to academic labs is as high as it is in the ML space. Right. You know, we're talking about OpenAI and Google and Facebook, right, and Amazon and Microsoft, and none of those are academic labs. And, you know, it's maybe also a little weird because the U.S. is actually, maybe this isn't fair to say, but I think uniquely bad at machine learning on a global scale if you look at our university system. Right, I mean, it, it was one of the things where I really feel like we got our pants caught down. Is you know the three universities that really led the charge out of the gate at deep learning, um, you know, it wasn't it wasn't Harvard, it wasn't MIT, it wasn't you know any of these universities. It was right. NYU, University of Montreal, and University of Toronto. Right.
0: All right, and, go to Canada. <laughs> I mean, you know,
1: they they absolutely deserve it. And you know, University of Toronto and University of Montreal have done an incredible job just maintaining these these dynasties almost of top quality researchers. And you know, uh, certainly the Quran School at NYU, right? Extremely top top tier. And and I don't mean to say that there aren't groups like that in the US now, and you know, Stanford, obviously they've got a really, really top tier department as well. you know, there are others. Those are just a couple of examples. Um, but Europe, actually, I think a lot of, you know, progressively more and more relevant research in this space is coming out of, you know, random universities in Europe that happen to have a couple of good faculty members. And, and, and still today, it feels like the, the kind of academic juggernauts in the U.S., they're, they're lagging far behind. Right. And, and instead, that that space has been entirely occupied by these industrial research giants. right Right. um i can't say whether that is good or bad right it is a big change and i don't think a lot of people are aware of it um it's it's weird it's weird um and and i still think we're not sure where it's going to end up
0: yeah and unless we could run a parallel instance of earth and effectively a b test it as a digital twin there's no way to know right you said where it's but I'll, i'll say i my hypothesis is that we we need, so we need Sam Altman to be in front of OpenAI, not John Nash, right? If I look, well, Mm-mm, well, intellectually, yeah. you know, and, and I chose just because it was a quick name that came to my mind as somebody, obviously that, you know, that people will know, you know. So. As an insane mathematician. Right, exactly, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But so we we definitely need somebody who has the ability to run the business of commercializing an incredible technology to advance that technology. It's an a really interesting balance of how do we bring these advances to the market? Because if it purely stays in academia, incredible advances will be made, but in the almost in the shadows. Absolutely, First, but, but yeah. by what open AI had to take on when, when of course GPT two came in and it created controversy. And then mm-hmm. GPT three was like, it was almost like those outbrain articles, like, this is the model that no one wants you to see. And it talked about oh, yeah. like this could change the world. It could ruin lives. And and it, it's not going to. I mean, so. the number
1: of articles <laughs> I saw out there that were, you know, like uh, uh, an AI wrote this article. Are you scared yet? Right. Yeah, like, like, the, with the, the Guardian that did that or
0: whatever. Somehow. I think the Guardian used GPT-3 to write their entire article about GPT-3. Which uh, it, was I, so- actually, <laughs>
1: several news artists, several different organizations have followed suit and, and actually done the same thing. Um, it, it was actually kind of funny. Um I don't know if you remember way back in the day, but we got a little bit of early exposure to kind of how the media was going to grab onto these things. Uh, do you remember the DC Gann paper?
0: No, I don't. Cr- it, 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 was, uh, it
1: was a couple of years ago. It was very, very popular. But that was that was kind of, uh, you know, I think the first piece of research that Indico published. Um, oh, OK, OK. And you know it was all of these these kind of really hot image you know generative techniques and people using it for all kinds of stuff. Um, and Vice uh, picked it up and they used it to generate the cover of I don't know like July twenty eighteen oh. or
0: something. Oh, all right, now um, it's coming together. So this is see, this is what happens. The uh, what you you slowly connect all the dots here. So. Yeah, 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 you know,
1: bit bit by bit. And, you know, it yeah. was it was interesting because I think that seeing their coverage of that and how they described it and, you know, who they attributed it to, um, it was all so, so different than, you know, we kind of knew, obviously, uh, at the inside. And, you know, the, the folks at Vice were, you know, they were, they were great. You know, we like emailed them and we cleared some of the stuff up and they, you know, they, they published uh, the edits to it. But, you know, I think, honestly, I, I feel very bad for Alec now a lot of days because I know that, I know that he sees that kind of stuff, right? Like people talking about GPT, and they're like, "This is the new Messiah of the digital world," right? And these like ridiculous, overblown concepts. And he, uh, you know, he's just—he's absolutely not that way, right? I mean, he's—he's, he's, you know, he's an outspoken spe- skeptic in, in the space, right? And and actually, to your earlier point on the ethics, I think that I, I think that it is really important. You know, I think that uh, I draw a lot of parallels between where AI is now and where, uh, you know, the pharmaceutical space was sort of at the dawn of patent medicines, where mm. you absolutely had, you know, a couple of really big breakthroughs, right? You know, things like aspirin, right, that, that would be, you know, cornerstones of treatment for, for years to come. But there was so much buzz, and there's so much noise around it. And there are people that are, are literally selling snake oil, there are people selling, you know, useful drugs and, and trying to, to, you know, keep people's expectations limited. But it's... Um, you know it's a bit rough living through it you know and seeing people on on both sides right telling me that gpt3 proves that we've accomplished agi and then and then in the same conversation you know someone else telling me that oh gpt3 is just the same as you know some some hidden markov model that we made in the 70s right yeah. and so when you're caught between those two extremes it's really hard to um i don't know it's uh, you get whiplash a lot you know day to day
0: and i think the the interesting thing is that we, when you're close to it, we dive further in. And so we're very much, you know, kind of like we say, like on people are like, you know, Twitter's a challenging place. So like, well, Twitter doesn't represent earth, necessarily it represents a very high percentage of elite people because you have mm-hmm. access to the internet, you're participating in these networks. Like most of the arguments that I see between sort of my peer group and, and the folks that I kind of follow in various spaces, I don't see them as representative of the global society. Unfortunately, yeah. they're representative of the of the people that have access to the press. Mm-hmm. You know, this mm-hmm. is what. I, but I, what I do love is that we've got the ability for anybody can do stuff with this thing now, and this was fantastic. That right? is like
1: what, definitely true.
0: What Substack yeah. is doing for media. Machine learning and what you and what you and the team are doing, like it allows people to no longer have the barrier to bring this stuff into their organization, their community, themselves, whatever it's going to be. Like this, true democratization is here. See that? That's cool. That
1: no, you know, I mean, I think that you know, that's very much what I'm excited about. At the end of the day, right? I, I think that. You know, so many of the problems that we ask when it comes to sort of the ethics of ML, right, I think a lot of the issues come when you approach the problem, uh, you know, in a top-down way. Like a lot of people do think about this, right, is I, you know, I'm going to create the model, right, you know, the model to end all models and it's going to be perfect and everyone's going to love it to do exactly what you want. You know, it's going it's to walk your dog, it's going to wash your car, you know, this model's going to do it all. Um, And actually, one of the things that I really enjoyed uh, in a recent OpenAI paper, the Clip paper, uh, they actually call out this thinking a little bit. Uh, And, you know, Clip, uh, you know, made really big waves for a lot of the very impressive zero shot behavior that it indicated. You know, and like that, that's, you know, all the rage is, you know, these zero shot techniques. But they actually make a a kind of a, a point not in their favor. Right. Which is that even when we talk about zero shot techniques, there's not really any such thing as a zero shot technique. We're just using, you know, labels as free data. Right. You know, maybe it's not it's not a label, so to speak. Um, But even still, they talk about how. You know, and I, I, I tell our customers this all the time. Right, you know, so so at Indico you need two hundred examples. You get a production quality model, and customers uh, or you know pr- prospects sometimes will say things like, "Oh well, you know, shouldn't the AI already know?" Right, you know, why do I have to train <laughs> um, And here's what I tell them, right? It's like, okay, uh, assume that was true. Uh, say I did have the perfect AI and and it knew everything, you know, from the get go. How would you know? H- how would you determine that in fact the AI did? Uh, you know was capable of doing these things uh, at which point they say oh well you know i probably have to get some data i need to construct a ground truth oh wait a minute
0: <laughs> <laughs> now what and for for folks that are fresh to this the zero shot model and the zero shot approach this is interesting because a lot of people don't realize where that fits in and, and what training and 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 how the sort of data feeds and and because this is a big differentiation yeah. and we talk about the, the scope of training data and yet, you know, we introduced the zero shot context. So, so, so if so you don't mind, explain that one.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, so maybe even, you know, I can kind of draw it, draw it up a level and, and talk about that space more broadly, because sure, I think yeah. it goes a lot to, to these questions about explainability and, and whether or not these models are black boxes, um, you know, uh, very, very early on. Uh, we made the discovery that when you train an ML model to do X task, uh, it ends up learning a lot of ancillary—sorry, uh, not any ML model, but like a modern deep learning model—it learns a lot of really interesting ancillary information that maybe you didn't explicitly tell it to learn, but ends up being useful in the task. Uh, so one of the ways we we saw this first is you know you train it to do sentiment analysis, and it learns what punctuation is, it learns what concepts of time are, right? It learns kind of all of these all of these different uh, concepts. And the question that we sort of then ask is, okay, you know, we've got all of this understanding inside of the ML model, and we started asking the question, okay, how much does it understand? And, and this is where things start to get really interesting. How do we know? How do we test it, right? How do we exercise this understanding? Um, and people came up with a whole, whole bunch of different techniques. You know, zero-shot learning is one example of that, is that they say, okay, if we've got enough inbuilt understanding, then we should be able to build a classification model just by telling it what the classes are, right? And it should automatically be able to then group things. Um, And, you know, you can construct a test to do that. And, you know, we're, we're relatively good at that problem. Right. Um, but there are also a lot of other interesting uh, forays. You know, one paper that I really, really loved was uh, the geometry of BERT or, you know, maybe discovering the geometry of BERT, where basically they, they found that uh, one of the things that we've got sort of hidden in this uh, internal understanding of the space is, you know, part of speech tagging and parse trees and all of these things that you used to explicitly build out it as different parts of your workflow. And things that linguists often will assert, you know, doggedly, you cannot learn from pure text. Uh, but, you know, again, we, we see it in the model. You know, we can show that it is there. Uh, there are still, you know, plenty of open questions in terms of how far this understanding goes. You know, what are the right controls that we sort of surface to a user that lets them pilot it in an intelligent way? And, and that's kind of the much more interesting question that we find ourselves faced with now. Right.
0: Now, and this is... We we talk about as well, and, and actually I, I was happy to explore this one with with Peter Voss when we chatted. It's the the, mm. the split between AI and AGI, so artificial intelligence, artificial general intelligence. We often talk about this where the the line is of you know. Deep learning for a single purpose, and this is mm-hmm. going to be the Alpha Go's of the world. But if you take Alpha Go and then you put it in front of a checker set, it would be dead in the water, right? That was the right. concept, and and yeah. where the different types of learning are, if you don't mind, run through that one as no, well. No, so I, I, you discussion. know, I
1: think I think people, you know, Narrow
0: really, AI, I guess, is really, I guess, I should, I should right, right. No, right, no, no,
1: <laughs> that's exactly right, and I, I think for for a long time, or even still to this day, right, that was sort of the primary assertion of the difference between you know, AGI and AI, and, and, and I will also say. Upfront, my personal, uh, you know, contrarian opinion is that uh, nobody knows what AGI is. Not really a real thing. Not necessarily a productive part <laughs> to
0: talk about. Nice, like um, uh,
1: but you know, like I, I think much more about what is the next step that we need to take to improve AI. Uh, and I'm also generally less interested in mimicking humans than I am in augmenting them. So you know, th- those are my my personal biases that I bring to the space. Um, But but I think even even with that, right, you know, there was this really big supposition that the big difference between AI and AGI, right, and fully replicating humans was narrow versus general intelligence. Um, So this notion that, you know, oh, you know, I'm training things. But, you know, it was almost this – it's almost like the missing link argument, right? Where it's like, no matter how many times you pack it in, right, you can always ask some new version of that question. So first it was, oh, okay, well, you know, it only does sentiment analysis, right? Or, you know, it only does sentiment analysis on movie reviews. And then, you know, with early transfer learning, we managed to train something that would do just generic sentiment analysis across all data sets. And then they said, okay, well, it's it's only sentiment analysis, right? This can't possibly do topic modeling. Uh, And then we trained models that could do any kind of classification task, right, and run it through the same model. And then they say, well, okay, you know, but that's only classification, right? You know, you can't you can't extend this to other problem types, and then and then we came up with what I still think is, is probably the most brilliant, but you know, undersold advance in NLP is this idea that everything is language modeling, right? Is that we can now use all these multitask learners to you know throw classification tasks and language modeling tasks and you know position tagging, uh, sorry, part of speech tagging tasks all into the same model, and again do all of these tasks with one model. Um, and then the and then right and you know so I think you kind of get the point right is that there's a series and series of those objections you know we made a lot of progress I'm sure there's some objections still we have even now Bert models that are capable of doing you know kind of arbitrary uh, NLP tasks in you know a hundred language all with a single model and yeah I guess some people still think that's narrow AI but uh, you know I think it just it goes to my point that I, I don't think people grasp what AGI is as clearly as they might think.
0: Yeah, and this is very interesting. And, and I remembered a good example was that there was a, as a Canadian uh, banking organization and they just, they adopted AI. And actually I saw this, I uh, spoke with the, the leadership team there on the technical leadership team. And they, they had done this really, really neat stuff around introducing, you know, a fully automated natural language you know, human sounding call center rep and they, they introduced it in and they said it was, they almost wish you had a documentary, you know, camera crew to watch it happen because they, they finally, they, they trained it on all the previous calls and like all this amazing data was into it. So they, they set it loose on the first real like full unaccompanied customer call. Yeah, And it goes through and, you know, it answers a bunch of questions. It goes through and it, very beautifully navigates a true human interaction with steering and different questions. And it was fantastic. Wow. And they said, and it get all the way to the end. And then they said, you know, you know, have we completed the task that you're after? Yes. You know, that's perfect. Is there anything else I can help you with today? And they said it was like the moment in the alpha go doc where also oh, they yeah. looked and they're like, they all stopped at like the, we don't understand why it did that. It didn't make sense. And they said that they like, no, they'd never, it was never built into the scripts that they trained, but it had listened Mm -hmm. to thousands of calls and it learned that this was a behavior that ultimately, and in the end they said that what was even more funny is the response was no, thank you. But I just want to say, it's so nice to talk to a human for a change.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's, that's, that's awesome. I I love that. (laughs) But, you know, I think it's a, you know, I think it's a really, it's a great, you know, point. And, you know, I really like that story for a couple of reasons, because I think it really underscores, um, you know, it, some of those next stage problems, right? We've gotten the AI in the AI space, right? Is that I think in situations where we've done a really good job, again, of defining, you know, what does success look like? You know, what is the input and what is the output of this system? I think right. that's where, you know, we've almost always been successful in those situations. Um, but sort of similarly, I think that where we have, uh, where we found a lot of gaps is that, you know, and, and, where I thought you might go at the end there, right. Is, oh, Hey, you know, could you give me a call kind of thing at the end? Yeah. Um, and you know, I, I think it's just, it's a, it's a really interesting question that I think we've got to keep asking ourselves as this technology keeps developing, right. Is what's this idea of what can we do and much more. What can we, you know, like measure? You know, what should we be actively kind of uh, incentivizing, and what are we incentivizing? Because I think that, you know, uh, have you, you know the under specification paper by Google.
0: No, no, tell me. This this is a
1: really really good one. Uh, this was Google talking about how basically they are bad, they and by extension everyone else uh, is bad at AI, uh, just like really <laughs> really bad, like uh, beyond saving kind of thing. Um, But, you know, it's a pretty intuitive concept. It's just the idea that um, for a particular task, uh, if I've got a really basic kind of supervision, like classification as a target, uh, there are actually, you know, there's not just a single model that's going to achieve optimal results on that now that we can create sort of an arbitrary number of these that are going to be near human accuracy. We've actually got an infinite number of equivalent models that can all do, you know, this particular thing. And what they talk about in this paper is that uh, when you've got that construction, and they kind of argue literally every ML problem in existence has this, um, you are kind of randomly picking inductive biases, right? By not controlling for them, right? By not testing, by not actually forcing the model to, you know, do particular things and kind of, you know, again, letting it uh, sort of run wild without a concept of, of, you know, what it's going to encounter, um, you are making uh, implicit assumptions, even if you're not aware And they were even able to show cases where just based on the random seed you used in your optimization run, right? You could not just get different models, but you could actually get systematically different models between the two random seeds, right? Right. And again, you'd have no idea, right?
0: Yeah, well, and this is the... It's always interesting. I, and I, I know somebody else who's a, sort of a prominent voice, definitely in, in the, uh, Cassie Kozmikoff, who... Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, she's, and, a, she's a good friend of mine. Yeah, and, and she's... I, I often think, I'm like... I, I, st- I still think that all of Cassie's social media is Cassie's AGI machine, just just spitting out <laughs> taxes, fantastic at it. But, you know, and and, you know, the way you're... Y- you need to be out there more doing this stuff because I think the the humanization more than the simplification is the way i would describe it of explaining what it is that these that that ml is is functionally doing but it's a this is where the gap i think lives in the industry we're starting to see more Absolutely. as we see real true use cases where it plays out and like i said looking at where indico is playing and and tackling really interesting problems like where you get unstructured inputs and being able to pull those together now we can really see cuz the truth is why do we do this stuff? Like there's the intellectual purity of the fantastic sure. nature of machine learning. and, what, and Which AI. is
1: fun, you know, right? right? Like I, I love digging into, you know, I love digging into the UMAP paper as much as the next guy.
0: That's right. Uh, the hard part is that when not having the relatability to the specifics of a use case and seeing the real true results that, where like we can societally benefit from this stuff, or commercially benefit from the stuff, and most importantly, personally benefit. Let's be real. Yeah, if people are specifically afraid of something, they will be specifically biased to always fear it.
1: Absolutely. It, you know the way the the analogy that we like to use, and you know, I'll say I'm generally not a kind of sci-fi type guy, but this is uh, an analogy that I think is really, really apt. Is that I think many people have this concept of AI as uh, you know, it's very humanoid robot, right? Almost Android. Uh, and, you know, they talk about automation, like I'm gonna have some robotic worker that's gonna come in and it's gonna sit next to my human worker, right? And it's gonna perform some, some percentage of their work. Um, and, and certainly I, I see why people have that mental model, right? It is a very, very common one, right? It's fed to us constantly, constantly by media. But I actually think it's, it's a very bad analogy for several reasons. Um, What we use instead at Indico, an analogy that I think is just much, much better, is this notion of AI as a bionic arm, right? The idea that really how we ought to be building these systems is with the notion that a human is a part of the global system. Um, And you were sort of alluding to this a little bit earlier. I think this is actually a really interesting topic that I'd love to talk more about, is this notion of different kinds of models and different kinds of supervision. Um, Because I think it's one of the places where very early in ML, things seem very, very simple. We had this notion of supervised and unsupervised, right? Or uh, like, you know, unsupervised has no labels uh, and supervised has labels, easy. It's very much not that way anymore, right? Like we figured out ways of turning unsupervised problems into supervised problems. We found a need to leverage unsupervised techniques within supervised problems. We invented a million new kinds of supervision that, you know, lives somewhere in the middle and we're not really sure what to call them. There is another really great uh, quote out of the clip paper where they talk about the notion of using image captioning as a target task, right, Uh, you know, and and there's a lot of different ways to construct it, right, but there's some information in how a caption is associated with an image. And they talk about how different papers over the years have varyingly called it either supervised, unsupervised, semi-supervised, and again, you look at like six different terms that people have used, all for what is ostensibly the same task. Yeah. Um, and I think it's something that uh, is really going to change very drastically, It is how people think about supervision, is how people think about this idea of actually contributing information from kind of a human to a machine. Um, and I really have enjoyed the term machine teaching, which is something that Microsoft came up with. Uh, but it it, it, it's just this notion that... What's much more important in this new uh, generation of ML, right? the next wave, if you will, is figuring out how we are actually going to get our information into these machines, right? Because it's not about replacing us, right? It's about actually interacting with us in, in an organic way.
0: Yeah, the, the augmenting of what we do is the most important thing and, and I guess I get that's why sort of societally and, and it, it doesn't make good headlines when you say we are going to augment people in amazing ways with machine learning
1: No, it's true it's true.
0: <laughs> yeah I, I was it the one of the, the quotes I, I often use and you know, I'm sure misquote. Uh, is you know we like Peter Thiel talks about it says we were promised Star Trek but all we got was the Star Trek computer, you know <laughs> and we we didn't get the tricoder. we didn't get the transporter like we didn't get those things we just got the bloody computer and however you know that was what has it unlocked in in an un, unfathomable amount of innovation in science in. You know, human genomics in medicine in Absolutely. behavioral understanding like to be able to better Like we talk about classification not just purely the fact that can you tell the difference between a pomeranian and a blueberry muffin i don't care about telling the difference between those two things in a picture what right. i care about is can i use sentiment analysis to on the inbound first 30 seconds of a call center can I detect whether somebody is more likely to be self-harming? There and you this go. This is the stuff right. that I actually give a shit about, <laughs> and it, and yeah. it's working. It's it's working. When we 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 don't talk enough about the positive values of what's being done by, and it this is being done in the commercial organizations. It's being done yeah. in. Uh, you know, in finance, in insurance companies, in, you know, in you know, medical organizations like that's this incredible stuff is happening that won't make the headlines, thankfully, because it's just is getting it's getting, it's it's getting to reality. Right. It's yeah. get, it's becoming real. And and then when we read about it, we only read about the self-driving car that hit somebody. We don't you know that there's a the really millions um... that didn't.
1: Yeah, there's a great uh, Douglas Adams quote that I've, I've tried to internalize over the years. Uh, something to the, I'm probably going to butcher it. Um, it's Technology is the term for what doesn't work yet. Uh, yeah, nobody right. calls a refrigerator technology because it works. Um, and I think that there is there is really something, something about that. Um, and, you know, I often say that, you know, my, my deepest goal is to make AI boring right, is to make it just a completely normal, typical part of, of, you know, everyday life. And and that's another reason that, you know, the analogies that I I really like to use are a lot more tool-centric, right? I think uh, another saying that I really love that is a a perversion maybe of a Russian saying is, uh, don't blame a mirror for your ugly face. Um, (laughs) And, you know, I, I think it's something that people really, really don't realize is, how much this technology is, it is just, you know, we are training it to do a thing and then it is doing that thing. You know, I, I talk about it sometimes, it's its just like traditional programming. You're just coding it with, with data primarily. You know, there's a little bit of code in there, but mostly you're programming it with data. And it's gonna do it exactly what you taught it to do, even if you don't quite understand what that is. Right.
0: Now, and this is another quote that I love to, uh, to pull is the Arthur C. Clarke, and he says that any, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Absolutely. And what I love about that is the comparison to machine learning and how we'll interact with society is in the same way we talk about like supervised, unsupervised learning, the comparison of narrow AI to, to AGI, You know, and this idea that a child can learn how to recognize a cat. In With little learning and little exposure to a wide, you know, set of inputs. And so we have this amazing ability that we are going to take that. And I don't want, I don't care if the machine learns how to recognize a cat immediately right away. Like that, obviously there's portions <laughs> that require it, but in the same way that, the very specifics of how they can do that in a way that a computer could not without a mass amount of data is fantastic. And that's where these things come together, right? Like you know, I, sh- I, I show my a- child something, I show them magic. And like I said, my kids do this all the time. I like grab a, grab a card and-, and Are the you card, a magician? And the card disappears and the card reappears. And my three-year-old immediately like looks behind my hand. Yep, yep, yep. Every yep. single adult that I know has no freaking idea where the card went. <laughs> and I'm like, a three-year-old figured this out before you did. And that's what, this is where, so when machine, when I look at machine learning, it is that thing, right? I don't want it to care about where the card went. I want it to be wowed by the fact that the card looks like it disappeared. That's what machine learning should be to us. Just You know, I think it's, I
1: think it's a very, very interesting example. And I I will also just uh, totally randomly, my dad is a, he's a member of the Magic Castle. uh, So I don't know if you like (laughs) do a lot of that, but uh, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. Uh, So I, I mean, I was that three-year-old, right? Yeah. Um, but I think that there's this really interesting idea and it actually, it, um, it's around this idea of constraint, right. And, and what insight really looks like, because I think that you actually see that same analogy on the ML side. And, and I'm actually, I want to contest, uh, one assertion of yours, right. Um, which is, uh, that adults don't have access to these massive amounts of data. Um, and one of the things that, uh, you know, I, I, think I learned really early on is that actually, if you think about the definition of which you just think your eyes, right. And you know, obviously your eyes are a very small portion of all the data you're taking in as a human. Right. right. Uh, you know, it is a, a nonstop 24 seven high definition video stream, right. right. You know, yeah, for a trillion 10, objects 10, 10 years 20, years right? before you do anything useful, um, and I think that's what people do really, re- uh, you know, often don't realize is actually the amount of data that humans have access to that they're preconditioned on it, it, is, in a lot of ways, much greater than the ML uh, than the ML tools have. But I think the other thing, and, and this goes very much along with that, and along with the idea that the uh, that the adult doesn't, you know, can't figure out how to solve the problem is that as time goes on, as we work on particular problems, you know, people, we we come up with very particular ways of viewing the world and and constructing problems. And in a lot of ways, this is another one of the tensions in ML, is that everyone wants to say, oh, we're going to put it in a situation, and because it doesn't have its preconceived notions, it's going to figure out a, a novel way to solve the problem. And it often does, right, as it finds the glitch in the video game that we didn't find before. But then when it does, we say, oh, well, but it solved the problem wrong. Right? right no but that's the wrong way uh you know which then of course kind of answers that question well well what's wrong right and sort of this question of you know what is the proper amount of of guidance in a search a- and that i think it um, you know I-, I think it underscores that idea to me that thinking more about what we want out of them than what they can do it, that's actually where we've got the most uncertainty now i think
0: yeah it's funny too and then this is why I tell people, they're like, they said, like, how do you learn how to use technology better? I said, easy. Uh, my favorite book is DSM-4. It's the, you know, the, this statistical, you know, understanding it's of, of, you mental know, illness. of mental illness. And, and they said, like, you, you learn how people work by learning how they break. And, and in effect, being able to understand where the edges are. And this mm. is, in effect, a lot of what we do with, with machine learning. It's not yeah. about the, the center of the model. It's about the edges and where we discover the edges and then build. Like the whole idea, we are constantly talk about edge cases, yet Absolutely. we sort of like naturally try to exclude them from our thought process because we don't like to have to deal with edge cases. Yeah. But the whole way that we learn how people work is to know where an edge case becomes introduced. And to have analyze uh, where it is.
1: Have you heard of the Clever Hans effect? No. So this is a, a term that someone introduced in the NLP space. I'm, just, I'm a huge proponent of it. Uh, have you ever heard of Clever Hans?
0: Clever Hans? No. Yeah. Necessarily. So I, right. I,
1: I believe Clever Hans is an American horse, but I'm, I'm not completely certain. So this is from, uh, I actually, I believe the era of patent medicine. This is this going to be the,
0: the horse that counts? <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, <laughs> that, 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 that is. right. one yeah. the that they believed he was doing something, but in fact, when they randomized the question, they found he, it was just luck more than it. <laughs>
1: sort of. So, so yeah. let, me, let me give the detail. And actually, I think the analogy is very, very good. So, so, you know, like you said, you know, Clever Hans is this horse that can do math is the incredible yeah. thing. And the way they do this, uh, you know, it's like a carnival show. They, you know, bring attendees in, and they'll draw a math equation up on the board. And the idea is that the horse then is going to stamp its foot a certain number of times. And however many times it stamps, that's the answer. And the horse is always right somehow, right? People can't figure it out, right? But you know, they they bring audience members up to write their own questions, right? And they control this a whole bunch of different ways. Um, the only thing that makes a difference. Is for some reason it only works with this particular handler. Now, what it <laughs> turns out is that the horse has gotten extreme, you know, it's a very, very smart horse, right? But obviously the horse can't do math. Uh, what the horse can do is it can read its handler very, very well. And because of the particular way in which it is counting, it reads the handler's body language and it looks for the, the immediate, you know, release of tension when it gets to the right number, and that's when it stops. And all that's to say is that, you know, obviously we can't say Clever Hans is wrong, that he solved the problem the wrong way, you know, using the tools that he's got uh, at his disposal. Um, And obviously, you know, again, still a very, very clever horse. But there's a really close analogy to that in the NLP space, which is that, you know, as we construct the problem, the problem is being solved. But we often don't realize that there's some you know ambiguity in the problem framing it may be constructed as, right? And, uh, you know, the, these researchers, you know, and it's again, I, I just think researchers that talk about why their work is not impactful, I have a lot of respect for them. That's exactly what they did, is that they, they uh, you know, they talked about how setting state-of-the-art is cliche, you just grab BERT, throw it at a data set. And they did that and they hit this crazy state-of-the-art and they said, you know, we waited because actually we didn't believe this state-of-the-art. And then what they did is they actually procedurally sort of figured out how it was working managed to just tear it apart and you know drop their efficacy down to, to random chance through this kind of really targeted malicious attack of their own model. Uh, and used it then to kind of underscore again just how deep the gap was between this performance and what their problem conception was. Um, and again, that that idea they're calling the clever Hans effect. Um, and it's
0: That's a it, yeah. it is yeah. a tricky We're- paradox yeah well and the funny thing is like most people would think like aha so it was a carny trick and i'm like no what the real trick is that you were mad that the horse isn't a mathematician but you should be pretty fantastically happy that he's a behavioral psychologist like (laughs) exactly exactly
1: right um and you know it's again it's about understanding which is which right and you know you can say oh sure you know it's then the horse it's not displaying real intelligence it's like okay, you know, sure, maybe, but I think that it's it's an overly simplistic view of it, right? And I think yeah. really where you recognize that you've got, uh, you know, incredible intelligence and human-level performance on the one hand and sort of uh, easily discoverable, stunning ignorance that even a child can find, you know, if you give them five minutes alone with GPT, it's, you know, I think it is the biggest paradox we've got in the ML space today.
0: And this is where the whole... Like what you talked about before, augmenting us with technology. This is what it is like. And and if we look for the purpose of breaking either side of the model, whether it's the computational model or the human model, we could easily do that. We could go to war on that all day long and find <laughs> sure. the edges. Right? It's like the old thing. Like was it someone told Einstein that I could find ten thousand people who will prove you wrong? He says I only need one. Like, it, 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 it's not it's not the point. It's not about yeah. the size of the wrongness. It's the fact that it, it, they will use that then and treat it as new data to then hypothesize the next, you know. This is the point of it. Like, when I, I learned how to play poker, so I'm dyslexic and... Mm-hmm. I I I have problem with numerical uh, ordering. Yeah, so I've got dyscalculia. I've got dyslexia, and it's funny. I say dyscalculia, and people get really messed up. So I say I'm dyslexic with numbers. <laughs> okay. It's a lot easier, but it's sure sure. But I've but I've got a very good memory, and I've learned how to read people. And so when I played Texas Hold'em, mm. I was f- fairly successful, and yet I don't. I I know the math. Like I'm a guitarist. But mm-hmm. I can't read music. I know the th- I know musical theory, but I right. can't read music. I can't. But see, read but and here play. who
1: who would I then to be who would I be then to say that your method of playing poker that relies only on the people's faces and understands right. none of the statistics behind it is wrong.
0: Right. If and it this, works, it works. That was exactly the thing that ended up coming up is people would get yeah. in fact it was even more difficult to play against me because I didn't follow the statistical f- approach that they believed I should. Because I was playing in, I worked for a financial services company. These are like quants. These are people who were like doing incredible Absolutely. data analysis and they were fantastically good at poker because they mm-hmm. knew exactly the percentage of the cards. Like they, they, they were card counting on the fly, doing all this amazing stuff. And all I was doing was reading bloody body language and figuring out through patterns of behavior, When to go, when to go, and then, and you would watch the frustration. They'd like slam down the cars, like, God damn, it doesn't make any sense. How did you know? They're like, How and because they said, You shouldn't have bet then, like, and I would always get yelled at, and I was like, Well, I don't know. It seems to work. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. that was my you know, outcome.
1: <laughs> I, I actually think that that lesson is is actually kind of one of the key things that is going to be driving the next decade of AI, believe it or not. And I think it's a, uh, so we, I'm going to paint a picture for you for a moment. So uh, you drink coffee.
0: I do. I, I have okay. a coffee company, actually. So I, I really Oh really? Yeah.
1: <laughs> oh, great. Wonderful. Okay. Okay. So think of drinking a cup of coffee right? And, you know, you've just poured it, you know, it's very, very hot uh, and you want to take a sip of your cup of coffee. Now, the number of different body systems that have to come together for you to do what is, again, the simplest thing in the world, right? You have to have temperature sensors that tell you how hot it is, right? You have to feel the position of your arm constantly to make sure you bring it really, really careful and you don't spill it at all, right? And again, we we do this without thinking about it at all. Uh, Now, I want you to think about taking a sip of your cup of coffee, but rather than having your full body, now you have to do it as a purely visual task, right? Your arm is completely numb, right? You have no sense of temperature. You have no sense of taste. You have to sort of look at the steam, you know, rising up the cup from the cup and, and, you know, determine whether or not it's hot enough. And you can very easily see how a a trivial problem becomes impossibly difficult. Right. And I actually think this is the the core of the issue uh, with ML today, right? And I think this is kind of what we need to get past to get to that next plateau is, you know, today you've got, uh, you know, like NLP techniques that work with text, right? You've got image techniques that, or, you know, computer vision techniques that work with image and never the twain shall meet. Um, and I think actually this is the single biggest... Uh, I've got two actually really big theses. And this is one of the two biggest uh, trends for the next decade of ML research is figuring out how we actually you know really, truly make these multimodal systems. Um, And you know, OpenAI they've done one direction of this, right? The notion of uh, building singular models that can interpret both text and image information, kind of reason between the two. I think that's very, very interesting. Um, At Indico, we're actually doing sort of the inverse version of that, right? Which is in the document space, we have to be able to reason across data that is both you know, textual and image, right? Uh, you know, the example I use is always, you know, sort of a table. You can imagine you actually cannot solve uh, table processing either as a purely visual or a purely textual problem. You need to synthesize both of them. Right. So I think, you know, both of those sides kind of coming together, I think it's going to shed a lot of light on the things that today we look at and sort of say, oh, you know, like how how ridiculously stupid, you know, how did it miss that? Um, Yeah, so I don't know. I I think it's a really, really exciting area of research.
0: Yeah, and and this... With each thing that we discover that unlocks more science of human behavior is really where I think this is the, the true advancements become where we can better understand ourselves to be able to leverage these tools, right? I mean, we talked about before, like, like the number of data points. So if you look, if your your eyes take in, let's just ballpark approximately one trillion objects at any point in time, your eyes are seeing a trillion things. Of course, sure. you can I see 75, right? I see two lights, I see a TV, I see a camera, I a microphone, you know, I can, my eye pro Says certain amount of things. Sure. Now sure. you take uh, LSD, uh, and as an example, well, ballpark. I, maybe I know people have done this. <laughs> so, but one of the one of the effects of, of LSD or MDMA or different different, uh, uh, different anything drugs, that turns
1: off your uh, what is it the default uh, neural system,
0: right? And yep. what it does is it one of the effects with LSD is the the elongation of the perception of time. Mm-hmm. And it's because, in the same way, and there's also what they call trails, right? Visual sort of lagging behind as you like move your arm. You know, it's the same way if you do it in front of an old TV that's like 59 it, hertz mm-hmm. and you do this and you see 10 hands. Yep, yep, yep. Like in real time, you don't see that. But because you're actually, when your brain is under the influence of these different drugs, mm-hmm it suddenly takes in and you can interpret much more information. So you visually see these trails because mm-hmm. you're actually interpreting all of it in real time more than, yeah. so than normal, right? And so I mm-hmm. think this is in the same way we talk about, you know, eventually technology will allow us to unlock, you know, and it's the old 10% brain thing, which we know is like a, it's, it's not, not true, but it's not wrong. It's, you know, if we're going to argue of whether it's 10% or, or whatever,
1: what what i always say is you know uh if you were using 100% of your brain you would have a massive grand mal seizure uh, <laughs> right, that is yeah, what that yeah. looks like yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: And, and so there there is this beautiful opportunity where we can do like this is where bionics would come into play that it's not meant to be you know create a, an inhuman use of technology it's to allow the human use of technology to be able to have somebody with parkinson's disease so that you could have Something that's on their arm that could actually counter the tremors, specifically because it understands the, the the neurology of the of the activity as well as the physicality of the activity.
1: So there's a really interesting uh, another historic example, actually, along those lines: uh, cochlear implants. Um,
0: this and this is actually,
1: um, I I actually love cochlear implants as an analogy for the ML space uh, in in a kind of a, a roundabout way. And, you know, for folks that aren't aware, you know, for, for many, many years, right, you know, b- building a cochlear implant from an electrical perspective, it's actually not that complicated, right? Um, you know, and we've been able to build them for, for decades at this point. Um, now, for a long time, the way that we optimized cochlear implants is we said, okay, what's really important for people with hearing loss is to hear human voices. So we're going to try to really, you know, pristinely tweak and tune the signal so just the perfect thing flows into the human brain right? The idea that that's going to, you know, help them. Now, obviously, they're building these filters, the filters are imperfect, right? They're, you know, bound to frequency, and they create this warping and, and all sorts of nonsense. And They're like incrementally doing it and doing it, doing it. The biggest advance in the field of cochlear implants in, in again, decades was someone just asking the question of, well, what if we just got rid of the damn filters? Right. This notion that, OK, well, rather than trying to have this, you know, very, very pristine, you know, carefully calibrated signal, what if we just piped it in and said, you know, like, make use of it. Yeah. And it turns out that worked drastically better. Right. And, and it's because they recognize, you know, what part of this problem should be solved in the brain and what part of this problem should we solve here? It's like, look, the human brain is always going to be better than a circuit at distinguishing human voice from background right
0: yeah. it's like let it do that yeah um, and i I, well, I tell you to to pick of 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 any of the s- examples is fantastic and i use this even to when I'm talking about technology and i i i tell people like with the where i work we we deal with you know ai and we deal with you know automation and i i give a presentation the first like five minutes of the presentation is just like f- just straight photos Right, mm. they call it, the I forget what the Machu Picchu or something. Where there's some I don't. There's some reason way that you do it. It's thirty seconds on a slide. It literally is just me. It helps me to tell the story without words. Got it. And I say, like, here's a, you know, a, a doctor, right? And the advances in technology that we can automate the ability to bring a drug to market sooner because of being able to advance the speed of trials and be able to advance the speed of research, right? It's Absolutely, I, I'm,
1: I'm advising a company that does that.
0: Right. And you, 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 and it's relatable. It's immediate. It's, you understand it, right? The next one is you know, self-driving, and whatever. I've got thing And the last one that I use every time, and it's like I still struggle even to get through the presentation because it's actually so meaningful. Mm. Is this? It's the. It's a screenshot. Of a, of a little girl, she's a toddler, she's two years old. And, and it's the look of like tears coming out her eyes the first time that she hears her mother's voice. And I said, that that's what we do, right? That's what you do. That's why we do what we do. Like this f- amazing technology, we talk about the automation, the bits, the AI, and like what we actually just did was we allowed a little girl to hear her mother's voice for the first time in in her life that's that's pretty darn amazing that's, if you ask yeah, me right I, no you, I,
1: I mean that that is really something
0: and you watch and at that point then people are like okay let's now we can dig into the technology and we've really given it context and it's like i just love it because it's like such a it, it's a pretty powerful moment when sometimes when you explain it to people and they realize like oh right when we give that beautiful relative story that and this is where, like I said, you're really good at this. Like you really do a great job of of bringing it to uh, a, a human understanding. And, I, you know, and this is what we need more of.
1: I think something that I, I often say is, uh, or, or rather I will say people often ask me um, if the leap from being an engineer to an entrepreneur uh, was a significant one. Uh, and I actually tell them, not only do I think the answer is no, I, I don't even really feel like I've changed. Um, only, for no other reason than I've got a very particular definition of engineering. You know, to me, uh, engineering, it is the art and science of bringing something from idea to reality, right? Uh, I think the only difference is that many engineers, they think that their responsibilities end at, at sort of the prototype, right? Idea to prototype or maybe prototype to, to a production uh, example. I, I just draw the picture a little bit broader, right? I say, yes, you know, absolutely, those are core pieces of engineering. But just as important is thinking about how the user is going to interact with the product. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm extremely biased here. You know, I don't, I don't know if you know Olin at all, but this is, you know, like Olin's, Olin's mantra is that, you know, design and engineering, they they absolutely work hand in hand. And an engineer with, a, you know, a little bit of design knowledge is, uh, you know, a potent weapon. <laughs>
0: Yeah, well, and in fact, most of the most of the really strong programmers that I know generally come from a, an arts, liberal arts, or even like behavioral <laughs> psychology background because that's where that's why UX is such an important part. And I re, I just, I, we're going over our regular time. I don't want to cut you off if if you've got a few more minutes, let me like keep going because there's some a very human side of what you're doing that I want to tap into.
1: Definitely.
0: You know, another great example, Lex Friedman. Uh, a lot of people know. Yeah, uh, yeah, from MIT. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I,
1: I run into him occasionally on Cora.
0: So he's he's another one who I liken to you in so many ways because first of all, do, doing fantastic things in the in the intellectual space, and then implementing it in the true technology, in practical technology implementations. Yeah, I mean, you know, time, it's. Uh also a pretty darn good mma fighter so let's oh is he he is yeah that i did
1: not know about black
0: belt in uh bjj uh just got it about about a year ago i think and yeah Uh, his
1: ground game is going to be a lot stronger than mine i will (laughs) say you know my background is uh karate primarily and like other striking martial arts so uh but you know if i keep him standing i think i could have a pretty good shot
0: (laughs) what What is amazing is that when you take the and of anybody, and I I describe it as this, there's always the other thing, right? There's a people that are incredible intellectuals. They're incredible engineers. It's the and that often I find brings more people together. And I mean, ultimately, this is the way that we classify things, right? You're either a a musician, a photographer. There's another thing that often brings us to a much more common space. And that's what's funny is, it gives a personal connection to how we do things. And so it was funny when I read your bio and of course you've got all this background. So tell, tell, ta- tell us about how MMA influenced some of the things that you do as well.
1: Yeah. I mean, that, that's really fair. And then, you know, maybe I'll also draw this to a, uh, to science fiction earlier. I remembered you uh, mentioning that and that's uh, something else uh, kind of relevant. So look I, on the MMA side and I'll just say like martial arts for me, it's something that has been important to me for, you know, uh, almost my whole life. Um, I will also say, you know, since starting Indico, I, I don't quite have the time to fight like I used to, you know, I'm, I'm definitely quite a bit rusty, but
0: hard to squeeze it in. (laughs) uh, It it is,
1: you know, what what can I say? But, but I think that more than anything, you know, martial arts was really, really helpful to me in understanding, uh, not understanding in enduring the motions of an early business. Right. Um, and, and it's something that people don't, um, Often, you know, if people aren't really into martial arts, they won't necessarily get this analogy. But um, different uh, styles of martial arts, different classes of martial arts, right, have extremely different philosophies. And I draw the comparison between sort of karate style, more, you know, Japanese martial arts and Chinese martial arts, you know, that would be, you know, very broadly characterized under Kung Fu, um, is that. You know in uh, karate you know you're going to be doing a huge amount of conditioning right you're going to learn a huge amount of forms right like every single uh you know there's like 10 belts or whatever or, well you know like until you get to your black belt and then you've got you know another 10 dons and you know it's just so 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 much content um it is completely different than chinese martial arts chinese martial arts um so so xin yi and i spent a while studying this in china um your first four years of study comprise five moves and you do each of those five moves tens of thousands of times right um and and it's just about this this notion that every single time you do it you're going to get a little bit better and a little bit better and a little bit better and i don't know i I thought it was a it was really frustrating at first honestly right i kept thinking like oh like i'm good at this you know when am i going to move on to the next thing Right. But I, I would just say, like the sheer grit that you need in doing martial arts, right? You know, uh, like training eight hours a day is a, uh, it's a lot. Um, but it's still not as hard as, you know, a sixteen hour day with travel at a startup,
0: right? Yeah, that's right yeah. well, in just so there's so much of it. it's it's. This is another problem where humans and machines, you know, get into this sort of battle format. Like we, we want to get better at it. We want to move faster than than the machine needs us to move. When we become good at something, and naturally good, one of the most frustrating things is learning the format that led to that moment. In mm. the same way that I can't read, I can't sit down and learn how to read music from notation and then sight read. Because I've already learned how to play, and I'll never be able to slow down enough. If I actually yep, did, yep, yep. if I traded it like a kata, and I just said, "I will do this thing," and I will pick up the Mel Bay method, I'm going to learn. Mary had a little lamb, but I don't. I think like I'm going to learn this really neat Even sevenfold uh, song <laughs> that I that I, oh, said, yeah. I heard. You know, like
1: uh, I mean, the, if you can play that, you know, <laughs> yeah. you know, good
0: job. And it becomes the same thing with with martial arts, with any physical thing, I'm a cyclist. And so yeah. once I was naturally good at it, it became really difficult to go back and learn how I got naturally good at it.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I think one of the other things that was actually really tough for me, because uh, most of my history was, uh, you know, more Japanese martial arts, karate and uh, Aikido, um, switching over to a sort of Chinese kickboxing is that the style is very, very different. Especially on the sparring side, people often think, you know, sparring is very unconstrained, but it's completely not the case, right? Every different, you know, even MMA, which is often lauded as being, oh, you know, like, no holds bar, you can do whatever you want, like, Absolutely not, right? There are a lot extremely of guardrails, <laughs> rigid, right? Like, um, yeah, like go into go into an amateur fight, try kneeing someone in the face, see how long they let you stay there, right? <laughs> right. Um, uh, so you know that that was you know it was a really really big adjustment, but I think maybe to bring it back to AI, it was another place where it brought this really deep um, sense of how even a very basic set of rules that you wouldn't think much about can actually have really profound effects. Uh, so, for instance, you know, uh, kind of Chinese mixed martial arts, Sanda, is more kickboxing-y than, you know, Western, what we think of MMA. The way they treat throws is that when you do a throw, if your knee touches the mat, it actually counts as you being thrown as well. Uh, so, you know, again, and, and it's, uh. it's a small, it, it's one rule, right, one line that is, you know, a subtle tweak. And really the rest of the rules are very much the same. But you can imagine how big that small difference is. Right. It makes it a completely different ballgame.
0: So here's the question. Who's the hoist Gracie of machine learning? The one that changed the way that we view what the industry is.
1: So uh, I think I'll probably first say that we haven't. We don't have that character yet, Um, you know, and, and I think that. Cause I never thought spec-
0: spec- you get that question, eh? <laughs> uh, no,
1: I know, I, I appreciate the question, mm-hmm. but no, I I didn't expect it, you know. And I think obviously, you know, we can point it at Jeffrey Hinton and Joshua Bengio and Yann LeCun and you know, very very foundational, right? But yeah. but they're absolutely not, you know, Gracie coming in and actually you know destroying the first MMA competition. They're not that, right? You know what they are is you know like Gracie's father right like the the people that came before that really helped to develop the the bjj system foundationally right and you know we, we haven't we haven't quite hit that right you know there's individuals that have had individual success but mark cuban you know mark cuban says that the first person that really understands ai that is going to be able to hold that is going to be the world's first trillionaire um so and you know i think that's probably a little exaggerated um but i I do think that we're still muddling through it. I think we might still be a few years out from, uh, from that person in that moment. It's, uh, it,
0: it, is, uh, it is interesting. And, it, and what I love as well is the, sort of the, I can detect it in the way you talk about this, is that you have a strong humility uh, in your participation in this. And, and, uh, and all of us do, I think. And it's, and it's good because, you know, well we that need the bold... We need we need bold thinkers and sometimes bold voices, which may piss a few people off. But guilty. in in a sense, the broader community who are participating and and trying to bring this to the next level <clears throat> look. I mean, very human people. <laughs> me
1: me and Alec, and, and this was one of the things that drew us to the space in the first place. Right is we would just email academics, right? I mean, we would read through papers and we'd say, hey, I don't really understand how you did X, you know, could you walk me through it? And we just got such an incredibly positive reaction, okay? And we know there is absolutely no way we would have been able to do this on our own, right? But, you know, it really, it goes a far way and a lot of people don't realize it's this, you know, Alec does not have a bachelor's degree, right? And, you know, how many spaces can you be in where you would be, you know, uh, you know, internationally lauded as a leader in your field and you don't need a bachelor's degree to do it? Um, and, and again, it, it is very much a moment in time kind of thing, right? And uh, but but it goes. But uh, sorry, I think my, my fundamental point is there's absolutely no way that he or I would have gotten to where we are as these, you know, undergrads in the dorm room if it weren't for the incredibly supportive and inviting community. Right. You know, Alec was shooting random messages to Ian Goodfellow when we were sophomores in undergrad and and he responded and he talked him through things. And, you know, I, I assume that they're co-authors on papers now, though I don't I don't know that for certain. Um, and, I, you know, we I, I absolutely think that it is our goal to continue that. Right, you know, and, and you know, it was the ML space in particular, but but even more than that, right? I mean, it was the entrepreneurship space. It, it was the tech stars ecosystem. It was it was Boston entrepreneurs. You know, and maybe the Boston part is less relevant nowadays, but no, no one gets the top, you know, not, sorry, not that I'm anywhere near the top, right. But no one even, you know, gets moderate success without a a massive wave of people that help them on the way up. And, you know, I think that the most important thing that you can do if, you know, and again, I've had mediocre success, I've taken maybe the first couple of steps. Uh, It's like, give as much back as you possibly can, like for as long
0: as you possibly can. It's, uh, it's what puts the the, the human part of the soul in the process. And, and it's, it's why we will do well as a society. We're going to struggle through it. We'll struggle with how we get there. And we'll talk about right in the same way that we talk about it in the religious sense. And, and this often you, you can see when, when real deep intellectuals have this thing, they talk about right and truth They'll actually argue for three hours about the definition of right and truth before they even get to the what it is that they're discussing, whether it's right or truthful.
1: My uh, my, my professor always used to say, "You really understand a space when you see the holy wars between the papers." That's right? right, and it's like it's all of these like implicit jabs at each other, right? I mean, it'll be this one line. We do this ML reading group at Indico every week, and I'll always pick out these little snippets where it's like, "Ah, you might not realize this." Uh, but, you know, I'll caption the lines like, oh, you know, Google throws ultimate shade at IBM. Because, uh, you know, that that is what they are doing. Right. Is they're taking these. It's like, oh, you might not realize. But six months ago, you know, such and such a researcher published. a, And these guys have actually been fighting about it over a while. Uh, but, you know, again, like they're humans like everyone else. Right. You know, we've made a huge amount of progress, but we still have, you know, more that we disagree about than anything. Uh, I think that, you know, at the end of the day, the surface area of the AI space is bigger than ever. You know, there's there's advancements to be made anywhere. And it's just it is a problem in a space so much bigger than any one person. Uh, you know, like I'd be I'd have to be incredibly arrogant to say that I actually know anything about AI when the space is so large that, uh, you know, I, I feel like my little piece of it. it, it still it, it rounds down to zero in the grand scheme of
0: things. It's, uh, it's refreshing to, you know, to know that you're a voice amongst it and, you know, and there's a lot of folks that are like you that, you know, maybe we don't hear about and that. So it's always the interesting. Yeah. The, the other problem we've got, of course, is yep. the press, you know, they seek the headlines yep. more than they seek the story. Uh, look, and and, and, there, and there's
1: people selling snake oil straight yeah. out, you know, I mean, you look at the massive collapse in AntWorks. you know, you look at IBM and the Anderson case study, right? I mean, you look at the Amazon resume reviewer and I'm only, I'm only using public things. Right. But, right. you know, it is clear that it has not all been roses, right? There have been people that have done anything from, you know, depending on how cynical you are sell inflated expectations or again like knowingly selling snake oil depending on how how cynical you are
0: yeah it's uh but i'm excited and uh by what's ahead and i'm excited Same. by the opportunities that we all have to participate in it that's the other thing is we, we all have a chance to participate and influence what's coming in various ways by what we what we choose to adopt and use and and
1: I think there's there's no better time, honestly, to to dive into the ML space than now. You know, Isn't we've done amazing? a lot of the hard work and like there's so much exciting
0: right on the other side. Can you imagine, like not that many years ago, we think I've got a friend and he was a student of John Nash. And he's mm. like, he says he remembers like like the languages he was using to program in at the time when he's, you know, like, From there to here and where they developed, you know, the fundamentals of game theory and like, like all the stuff that came out of that stuff. And now the ability for us to exponentially advance things. And this is the difference I talked about, you know, to, uh, to Joe the head of a company called QuantGene and the the real, the the misuse of the word exponential. And he's like, no, no, this legitimately is exponential, like using quantum technologies to exponentially Mm. advance the way we do things, this is, we are very truly in an amazing time in, in society.
1: I, I think it is is—it is really, really, it is impressive stuff. And I think it, it's interesting because, you know, I think in a lot of ways the GPU sort of boom, right? And it's become this incredibly sophisticated tool chain, right? That's built up on top of, of GPUs as your compute surface. But yeah. you no, know, I was hearing about GPUs being used in compute as this sort of theoretical thing you know when i when i was probably 12 you know 13 years old on on a computer right yeah. you know like fussing around on the internet it was i think it was really really it, it's just i don't know the longer i'm in this space the more i'm humbled by the fact that the more things change the more things stay the same right like how you know there's there's not you know old men jumping out of bathtubs scream, screaming eureka right like right. it just <laughs> doesn't happen right it is it is diligent work over long periods of time, making consistent, real incremental progress. And I think that, you know, I, I don't use incremental in, in like a negative way, right? I think making real incremental progress in the sciences, is, it is incredibly difficult. And those real incremental uh, improvements, right? Like, like modern deep learning, you know, I, I can't point exactly at where it started, but there is, there is a, you know, a real increment in there somewhere. Um, and we're still just Feeling the ripples of this technology, we've got so many, so many other places we could apply it to.
0: It's a wondrous time to be in it all. It's, it Absolutely uh, is. Excellent. Um, well, Slater, I could literally just talk to you all day on this stuff. This is really good. Thank you for taking the time. Uh, totally- for folks that did want to get in touch, uh, obviously I'll I'll have links to you know uh, recommend people check out Indico and what you're doing there. Uh, but if they want to reach out individually and 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 get a hold of you, what's the best way to do that?
1: Yeah, you know, you can ping me on Twitter, uh, SL8RV. Uh, you know, LinkedIn is always good. And I do take questions on Quora if you've got anything that is uh, ML specific.
0: Nice, nice. Yeah, that's a, uh, <laughs> what I always am amazed by is this idea that no matter how amazing technology is and what we can do with it, when it all comes down to it, we're still going to be fighting over which Linux distribution we're doing using to do it. <laughs> That'll be yeah. the thing that breaks society. It won't be the ethics of machine learning. It'll be somebody arguing with you, "Why did you use Ubuntu instead of CentOS?" Like
1: As, uh, we we always <laughs> joke about how uh, you know AI is the easy stuff. What we're never going to solve is video conferencing, right? Oh, that no. that is that is beyond human comprehension. You know, like we'll have AGI, you know, defined, locked down, executed on. We're going to have quantum computers in every household. Web conferencing is still going to be a hassle.
0: That is uh, the elusive technology that, uh, and I, I I would even question whether video conferencing has augmented or taken us backwards <laughs> in, you know, in interaction.
1: <laughs> you know, I, I love it. it lets me see a family that I wouldn't see otherwise. Uh but it's it's just different.
0: It is, yeah, and it's cognitively tiring. Like it, yeah, when you is. do a lot of it, like one thing we've learned, and, and as I keep going into overtime here, uh, yeah. But like just the the true cognitive uh, effect on us when we spend more time sitting, staring into a camera, worse at ourselves, and in fact, there's a real, an unfortunate psychological side of. Seeing your own face so often during a day that it can actually very much impact the way that people see themselves and and the way they, because self image is a that's why, that's I, why I images started, are mirrored. Uh, parting right?
1: my hair on the other side
0: actually,
1: because <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's it is too weird.
0: Yeah, and yeah. and if if you if people don't think that you get weirded out looking at yourself slightly differently, take off the mirroring on the software, like a Zoom, like everything. There's a reason we see ourselves in reverse image, and you see that yeah. checkbox, you're know, like, let me just uncheck that. Like, oh dear God. <laughs> yeah, it, I mean, it's
1: a it's almost like when you listen to yourself recorded back the first couple of times, you're just like, yeah. who is that person? That's not me
0: reason number 28 why i don't edit my own podcast because i just like i just like i wait to hear like did it record perfect edit the front edit the back publish
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah see it's like i i um for some reason every time i record a demo record myself i end up having to crank it up to two to three x speed just so it feels normal and comfortable listening to
0: we'll tell you what people hate that (laughs) That is actually that is the trick that I've done in order to allow myself to listen to myself because I don't feel yeah. like I'm hearing myself. That is me, the same as me mirroring my Zoom, so totally. that it feels familiar. That is funny that you say that. And there's probably- I, I watch
1: everything at, at like two point something x nowadays. There's like a yeah. little app, and you can throw it on any uh, any web player. Um, that is oh, it's such a lifesaver.
0: The first time i heard sam harris talk at normal speed i thought i was i, I was something had gone wrong with him. and it was yeah. like because i've been listening to podcasts I listen to all these many speakers especially when you're very they're very thoughtful speakers and they're very purposeful in the way they describe
1: things yeah. but and, you know you can yeah. you can to exit and not lose anything
0: yeah that's yeah. i i haven't quite gotten there i'm about 1.75 is my sweet uh, spot Potato. I start potato. to I, I get lost a little bit, probably because I'm doing another thing at the same time, which I shouldn't. But uh, that's uh, you another know, conversation uh, unto itself. <laughs>
1: definitely. Look, well, thanks so much for having me, Eric. Look, it's been a total pleasure chatting. Uh, I, pr- I should probably run off and uh, get back to other things.
0: Yes, we should. Ian, but thank you. <laughs> so Slater, I'll make sure people get connected with you. I uh, really appreciate the time.
1: Total pleasure. You know, thanks for having me. And it was a lot of fun.